Uh, we are taking a break from our sermon series on the Gospel of John. We're going to set that aside for several weeks and pick that up again in the new year. Next week begins the Advent season, the four-week uh, run-up to Christmas that the church uh, has historically observed, and so we're going to observe, observe that uh, as well. So next week we'll begin our Advent series. And this week we have uh, a special treat. We have a guest preacher, and he comes from uh, the ranks of our own membership, which is actually pretty exciting. Uh, our preacher this morning is going to be our brother Stephen Altrogi. And if you don't know Stephen, uh, Stephen and his, uh, his wonderful wife Jen and their three daughters have been a part of our fellowship here at Four Oaks since 2014. Prior to moving to Tallahassee and being a part of Four Oaks, Stephen served for six years as a pastor, as an associate pastor at Saving Grace Church up in Pennsylvania. And uh, I told Stephen this morning that in Pennsylvania right now, it's like 30 degrees. So, you know, we've got Florida State, and that's okay. Some years that's good. Uh, not so much this year, but we also have not 30-degree weather, so that's, that's pretty great. So he's happy to be here uh, for that reason. Stephen, since he moved here in 2014, has served the church in a, in a variety of capacities. He's helped with production and AV, creative work. He's helped with leading worship. He's uh, co-led a community group. He's led Bible studies. And uh, he's been just a very dear uh, friend to me, and our families have, have, have really enjoyed uh, a friendship and a fellowship together. Stephen's a man of humility, and he's a man who loves the Scriptures, and we're excited to have him come and open up God's Word for us. So Stephen, why don't you come and lead us, and as he comes, let's welcome our brother Stephen and thank him. Good morning, everyone. Man, it's a privilege to be here. It really is. So grateful for the opportunity after taking a while off of preaching just to get to stand up, declare God's word again. It's just, it's an honor. It really is. And to do it in the church that I'm a part of, it's even more of an honor. So thanks for letting me get to do this. Would you turn in your Bible to Psalm 103, please? Psalm 103, very familiar psalm. One of my favorites. I'm sure many of you have read it many times. When Josh and Paul asked me if I'd be willing to do this initially, uh, and I was excited about it, and they asked about some potential subjects, I initially thought of things that, just that I thought would be good, that we could all rally around, inspiring positive topics like Donald Trump, good or bad, uh, you know, simple solutions to gun control, stuff we'd all get behind, but they suggested maybe not. So we settled on Psalm 103. This is a hymn from David a hymn of David, and it's a hymn of remembrance. It's a hymn where David is remembering and reflecting. And if you're like me, there are certain events in your life where you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when something happened. So, for example, my friend Pete Butler, he's on drums this morning, he has told me repeatedly, he remembers the day and time and what he was wearing when the first shot of the Civil War was fired, and I get one chance up here to dig it, my friend Pete, got to take it. Um, my dad, he talks about being in his middle school classroom, 1963, I believe it was October, uh, the principal comes over the loudspeaker and says that the president, John F. Kennedy, had been shot and assassinated. I remember September 11, 2001, coming out of a tremendously 
boring college class on accounting and a guy out in front of the building saying something like, man, did you, something's crazy is going on in New York City. Did you hear about it? Like a plane or something crashed into a building. I remember that really clearly to this day. I'm a Steelers fan, so I remember when in the Super Bowl against the Cardinals, as time was running out, Santonio Holmes made a crazy circus catch in the back of the end zone to win the Super Bowl. I remember much more precious things, my kids being born, the day I got married. These are just things that are imprinted on me. And I think you probably have things, memories that are similar, that you just know when they happened, what you were doing. They're burned on your mind. But here's the unfortunate thing that I've learned as I've gotten older, is that no matter how precious the thing that we're remembering, it'll still fade. Both the trivial and the precious fade, don't they? Things that I thought, I am never going to forget this. I get a little bit fuzzy on them. Suddenly they're like Netflix when your connection is bad and it gets all grainy and buffering and you get really frustrated. You can't, I can't remember the details exactly. I can't remember where I was, who was there. I can maybe remember some general details, but things get fuzzy. And honestly, for a lot of things... I'd like to forget them. There are a lot of things, honestly, I would rather forget, like the time that I totaled my dad's car. Like to forget that. Like to forget the time (laughs) that I did a rap solo as part of a homeschool choir. Like to eliminate that from my memory. I'd like to forget that the band Creed ever existed. But there are some things that I don't want to forget because they're much more important and precious. And unfortunately, these precious things fade just as much if I don't constantly remember them. And as we move out of this Thanksgiving season and we're transitioning into the Christmas season, I've often found that Christmas in general, and really just at who we are as people, we can be forgetful, incredibly forgetful. And in this season, it can actually be a very forgetful season for us when we're supposed to be remembering something that is so precious, the birth of Christ, and yet in the midst of all the craziness, a forgetfulness can overcome us, and we can forget the good news of the gospel. And this is a forgetfulness that can lead to grumbling, depression, discontentment. We think of all the things that are broken in our lives. This isn't a Christmas temptation. This is an everytime temptation, but we are so preoccupied with what is in our face that we forget what we have in Christ. It's not to minimize these things. It's not, I'm not trying to at all minimize heartbreak and grief. They're real. But I believe God in his word has a sweeter path for us out of grumbling and out of discontentment into gratefulness. And that's what Psalm 103 is about. It's about remembering leading to gratefulness. So if you would stand with me as we read Psalm 103. says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, And it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, we ask that you would do everything that you want to do in us through this passage, that you would stir us to deeper affection for you and for deeper gratefulness for all you've accomplished on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you wanted to crystallize this passage into a single point, which can be difficult to do with poetry like this, but if you wanted to bring it to a single point, it would be this. Love for God comes from remembering God's covenant love for us. Love for God comes from remembering God's covenant love for us. And this is a hymn written by David, and he breaks this hymn down into essentially three stanzas or three verses. And in the first stanza, David focuses focuses his attention on himself and blessings he's received. Then he lifts his gaze to God's people, and he remembers what God has done for his people. And then finally, he spreads his eyes to all of creation. That's the finale. And then... Just before we hop in, quick clarification. We don't use the word covenant very often, and we're going to see it here. So a covenant is simply this. It's a contractual relationship between two parties in which each party agrees to uphold their end of the bargain. And so in the Old Testament, God, out of his grace and mercy, chose Israel to be his covenant people. He made an agreement with them that he would bless And keep them and prosper them if they would obey the Mosaic law. And so as David is writing this, that's what he has in mind. He knows that God is a sweet and gracious God who has reached out uniquely to the people of Israel and blessed them in ways like no one else on the face of the earth. So that's the backdrop for this. So with that in mind, let's just walk through each of the stanzas. Each of the verses. So, stanza one, verse one, if we're thinking of this as a song, 
David is remembering God's personal blessings. Look down at verse 1. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's like he's taking himself by the collar and speaking to himself. He's saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless him. And you notice, he doesn't say, Bless the Lord, some of my soul. Bless the Lord, a little smidgen of my soul. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and let all that is within me, all, every part. David knows that there's only one right response. When he sees all that God has done for him, he knows that there's only one right response, and that's complete and total praise and gratefulness to God. That's why he says all. Let all that is within me, every part of my being, my mind, my soul, my affections, my body, let it all respond in gratefulness to God. He knows that the unique blessings he's personally received call for an extreme response of gratefulness. I don't think this show is on TV anymore. Remember the show Extreme Home Makeover? They would find a deserving family who usually had a house that was just in terrible condition, falling apart, water damage, mold. A lot of times the children had special needs, and the family just couldn't afford to, for whatever reason, fix their house. And they would give this family a completely, essentially a completely new home. Gorgeous, beautiful home. And then the finale of the show was always they would park a bus in front of the house. And the crowd would chant, move that bus, move that. And they would move the bus and the house would be revealed. And if you've seen the show, do you remember how people would respond? Man, they would just, it was usually a couple things. They would fall on the ground with gratefulness and tears. They would hug each other. They would, some people would literally jump in the air. This was the response to what they'd been given. And what we're seeing from David, it's like that times 100. He's calling every part of himself to gratefulness to God. And so the question then comes up, okay, so we get it. David's grateful and he's really loud about it. But what is he so grateful about? Look down at verses 2 through 5. David is specifically grateful for God's saving, redeeming covenant mercies. In verse 2, he says, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David knew that as part of God's people, as part of God's chosen covenant people, he had these blessings that no one else in the world had, no other people in the world had. Unique, incredible blessings, forgiveness, not just of some sins, but of all sins. A relationship with the God who heals diseases, some physical, but even more importantly, the God who heals the diseases of the soul that lead us into sin. Don't you love the word all there? It's such an important, precious word, isn't it? God forgives all your iniquities, not some, not just the petty ones, but all. And David had some bad ones, some really bad ones. Murder, adultery, straight-up idolatry. And so this forces us to ask a question. Do you believe that God forgives 
all your sins. Not just in your head. Because, of course, you believe that in your head if you've read the Bible at all. But do you believe it? God forgives all your iniquities. The ones you're ashamed of. The ones that maybe you lie awake at night and you just you grieve about them. You regret them. The ones that you're not going to tell anybody ever. Aren't you glad God forgives all your iniquities? It's such good, sweet news. And then David talks about God's love surrounding him. God, the same God, the forgiving God, puts his love and mercy surrounding David, in front of him, behind him, over him, around him. There was never a moment when David was out of God's love. And how do we know this? Look at the word David uses. The word David uses to describe God's love is steadfast. It's not a fickle love that comes and goes. It's a steadfast, unwavering love. This isn't like that first two dates kind of love where you're just, I don't know, you're not really sure if you're into the person. This isn't Thanksgiving table family love where you love your relatives, but you don't really like your relatives. This is an unbreakable, intense, personal Love. The closest thing I can come in my own brain is my love for my wife and kids. And this is God is, God is so much greater than that. And our temptation when we read the Old Testament, we can too quickly go to, well, here's how this applies to me. Jesus did this for me. Yeah, I just, yeah, I know God forgives all my sins. But in order to really understand the nuances of this, and the beauty of what David's saying. We need to understand this first in light of the original context. David was writing as someone who had received all these benefits, remember, through the Mosaic Covenant, through the covenant God made with Moses and the people of Israel. God had created a system for the people of Israel so that they could have their sins temporarily forgiven through animal sacrifices so that they could have a relationship with God, despite all their sinfulness. And this forgiveness, it was there, but it was not permanent. It couldn't solve the permanent problem of sin. Because, I mean, if you think about it, honestly, could a bull or a goat or a dove somehow be payment enough for the wreckage caused by sin? No. A full, final, complete solution was needed. And so this psalm, it points us forward to the full and final sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The Mosaic Covenant, it did allow God to be steadfast in his love toward Israel. Even though Israel constantly sinned, even though they rebelled against God, even though they were often diving headlong into sin, God could redeem his people. But all these things, they were just stopgap measures. They didn't ultimately solve the problem. Sacrifices had to be made again and again and again. Priests had to go in again and again. Sin was too great to be atoned for by those sacrifices. And yet, here's, think about this with me. When David saw that God had provided this for Israel... When David saw that God had provided any way for them to relate to him, even if it was imperfect and and not full and complete, 
when David saw this, he was overwhelmed with gratefulness. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul. Essentially, God, thank you for giving us this way of having sins forgiven. Now in Christ, we have a much sweeter and fuller forgiveness, don't we? A much sweeter covenant with God, a much deeper and truer solution to the problem. Christ has once and for all paid for our sins. No more repeated sacrifices. No more priests going into the temple because we are all priests to God if we are in Christ Jesus. And neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor the future nor the past can separate us from the love of God. And we haven't just been redeemed from our enemies. We've been redeemed from hell and given a place at God's table. Hebrews 10, 11 through 12. I love how it says this. It paints such a beautiful picture. It says this, And every priest, it's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is like the difference between winning $10 in the scratch-off lottery ticket and the Powerball. It's the difference between your team getting to play in the O'Reilly Auto Parts Bowl and the national championship. It's the difference between the Star Wars prequels and the original movies. It's the difference between choosing to attend the University of Florida and the University of Florida State. (laughs) I have to pander at least once to the audience. (laughs) There's no comparison. The point is there's no comparison between what we have in Christ now and what David had through the old covenant. And so here's the question then that gets pressed on us. If David overflowed with gratefulness at what he had, at the limited, temporary, not-sufficient things he had, how much more should we overflow with gratefulness for what we have in Christ? How much more should our hearts bubble up with joy in saying, bless the Lord, O my soul? If David was so grateful for his blessings under the old covenant, we should be much more grateful for what we have in the new covenant. And so can I just encourage you and myself as we're moving into this Advent season, this season of remembering, let's reflect on this. Let's reflect on what we have in Christ. It's great to celebrate. I love getting to celebrate the Christmas season. But without remembrance of what we have in Christ, it can turn into something pretty empty pretty quick. So this is an opportunity for us to regularly reflect on this, to pray about it, to journal about it, whatever we need to do to remember it. Because remember, here's the point of the text. Love for God flows out of remembering God's love for us, God's covenant love for us. So that's the first stanza. David has spent the first verse of his song contemplating and praising God for his personal benefits. Then he moves on to, in stanza two, verse two, remembering God's acts of love for his people. He calls to mind specific things God has done for the people of Israel. Look at verses six to 12. David says, the Lord works 
righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. David's remembering here, he's remembering God's mighty deliverance of the people of Israel from the oppression and slavery of Egypt. David's remembering how God worked justice to rescue the oppressed people of Israel. Remember how he did it? He came in and he basically orchestrated a divine jailbreak where he unleashes 10 plagues on Israel and then he leads them out to the Red Sea. They're backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptian army's pressing in. It looks like all is lost. Then God splits the sea, the Israelites go through, the Egyptians follow, and God destroys them. That's what David's remembering. And then God graciously gave Moses a glimpse of who he was and gave him the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. As David meditates on these things, as he's thinking through how God has specifically blessed Israel, his only conclusion is, what a loving God we have. How loving God is. God was so merciful and gracious toward them. Right after God rescued the people of Israel, remember how how they responded? Hey, let's make a golden calf and worship it. This is the God who delivered us. In that moment, God should have repaid their sins in full by destroying them. But he didn't. He was merciful. When they grumbled and complained in the desert, God didn't deal with them as their sins deserved. He didn't abandon them. He didn't destroy them. When they accused God and basically pointed their fingers at God's face, accused him of leading them into the desert to die of thirst, God could have given them what they deserved or repaid them according to their iniquities, but he didn't. Instead, he was patient with them. He fed them. He gave them manna in the desert. He provided water out of rocks. He terrorized their enemies. He brought down cities simply by having the people march around them. And then he provided this system that would allow God to be their people. That would allow God, let me phrase that the right way, that would allow God to be God to the people of Israel. Under the new covenant of Christ, here's where we take what we see in the context and we go to the new covenant. Under the new covenant of Christ, uh, with Christ, God has worked justice for us and delivered us from an oppression that's so much more intense and serious. We, just ha- we haven't been delivered just from Egypt. We've been delivered from Satan. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. We've been delivered from the enslaving power of our sin. And we've been brought into God's kingdom of light. We were living in our own sin, in our own wickedness, the filth and gutter of it. We didn't want to change. We didn't want God. And God came to us and he said, I'm going to deliver you from yourself. I'm going to break the oppression you're experiencing from sin and Satan and your flesh. God worked righteousness and justice on our behalf. And we see this the most clearly. If you want to see this most clearly, look simply to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus 
the righteous one, Jesus our Redeemer, he came to destroy the works of Satan, to free the oppressed, and to bring us into the kingdom of light. And rather than repaying me for my sins, which God should have done, he repaid Jesus for my sins. He repaid Jesus for your sins. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve because he treated Jesus as our sins deserve. God has not maintained his anger forever against us because he spent it all on Jesus. God, as the final plague to deliver the people of Israel, he killed the firstborn son of all the Egyptians and God killed his own son to deliver us. This, when David says love that's higher than the heavens, this is what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. This is a love that is so great, so high that it cannot be comprehended. This is a forgiveness that takes things as far, our sins away as far as east is from the west. And David, he was just getting a little glimpse of it in the Old Testament. It was like he got the appetizer. Or like when you're getting ice cream and you get that little sample. That was what David was getting. And we have the full meal. David, it was like he was trying to look or watch a baseball game through a tiny hole in a fence, and we've been given this seat in the owner's box. And it's almost like David, as he's trying to comprehend the love of God he sees, he's running out of metaphor. So he says, uh, God's love, it's as high as the heavens are above the earth. The forgiveness is as far as the east is from the west. Today we'd be saying things like, it's deeper than, God's love is deeper than the Mariana Trench. It's higher than Everest. It's more beautiful than the Grand Canyon. It's more intense than a Category 5 hurricane. You simply can't come up with enough phrases to describe how glorious this love is that we get to be part of. How glorious God's kindness and love toward us in Christ. It's not enough words to describe it. So this presses another question on us. Do you believe that God loves you personally? Not just generally, because he's God. He's supposed to love everybody, right? God's love. No, do you believe God loves you specifically, personally? This isn't just John 3.16 love, where God so loves the world. It's that. But it's also 1 Timothy 1.15 love, where Paul said, Christ died for me, the worst of sinners. He loves you and me personally, specifically, zealously, intensely. It's a love you can't escape. It's a love you can't outlive. It's a steadfast love. And here's the good news. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, God, here's when God will stop loving you. If you are in Christ, God will stop loving you when he stops loving Jesus. God will stop loving you when his covenant comes to an end, which it won't. And that's secure, steadfast love. I think this is why David says, if you look at verses 15 to 17, he says this, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Man, as I get older, I just feel like my life is so short. Where has the last decade gone? 
It's like a blur. I can't remember. Like, things are getting fuzzy. Time just seems to keep speeding up. My life is quickly over, but not God's steadfast love. It's eternal, unchanging. It won't end. It won't stop. His love for you won't end, and it won't stop. And unfortunately, I'm one of those people who I'm very, very bad at keeping up friendships. And so if I don't see you, uh, at least on a semi-regular basis, I'm just not going to be real good at keeping in touch with you. This is a problem with me that I don't think I'll be able to change unless God helps me. Because my love for people and for others, it's just shallow. It's short-lived. It comes and goes. It's fickle. It's not steadfast. God's love for us isn't like that. God's love for us in Christ is steadfast. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And so how do we respond to this? How does David respond to this? Remember, David's looking through the little peephole in the fence, and he responds with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, let everything within me bless his name. How do we respond to all that we've been given in Christ? It's not really complicated. It's just gratefulness. It's adoration. It's love for God. It's affection. It's delight in God. It's important to live a godly life. It's important to obey God. But that obedience always flows out of our remembering and delighting in God's love for us. Our obedience to God flows out of our reflections on God saving us and putting us in Christ. So again, we're moving into craziness of Christmas. And it's an opportunity to stop and reflect and remember and delight in God and be more grateful for what we've received in Christ. To delight in our God who is higher, his love is higher than the heavens and rejoice in our forgiveness which is as far as east is from west. So now David, he comes to the end. He comes to his last verse, his final stanza. This is the finale. This is the crescendo. This is when things get loud after spending 19 verses marveling at God's love after seeing what God has done for him personally and what God has done for his people, now David calls all of creation to worship and praise. Look at verses 20 to 22. He says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you, his mighty, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the grand finale of the symphony. David is saying, who is like our God? There's no one like our God. And so in response, all of creation, join me in blessing God. Join me. Join me, you sun. Join me, moon. Join me, rocks. Join me, canyons and stars. Join me, angels. Let's worship this God. Let's adore our God for all he's done. This is the song that we should be hearing in the background of our lives. Creation is singing to God. Creation is delighting in God. The angels, when they see the redemption God has worked for his people, they respond in praise. And by God's grace, that's our response too. The rest of the world may grumble, may be discontent. We can be tempted to be that way too. I feel that temptation all the time. 
The remedy for that is God's covenant love, reflecting on it, delighting in it, rejoicing in it. Revelation 5, it gives us a glimpse into the song that's happening now and will happen for all eternity. It says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll. This is being sung to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is the song that is going on now in heaven This is the song we will be delighting in for eternity. We will be saying, worthy is the Lamb for all He's done. He's redeemed us and He's made us part of His people. A kingdom of priests to our God. One of the most tangible ways we get to celebrate this song, to join with creation to join with saints past and present who have been redeemed is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In a moment, we're going to take it together. Let's reflect on these truths as we come to the table.